0: Matthew 5, breaking in at verse 3 and reading through verse 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. You may be seated.
1: Thank you, Norman, for reading that passage, and also thank you for your prayer. I don't know if you thought about it or not, but most of you prayed several prayers prior to the prayer that Norman prayed, and I'm thinking of the songs that you sang. Uh, Come, gracious spirit, heavenly dove, with light and comfort from above, be thou our guardian, thou our guide, where every thought and step preside. And I especially thought of the prayer just preceding that one. Gentle Holy Spirit, bring refreshing breezes on these people gathered here today. Gentle Holy Spirit, open every heart to hear you speaking quietly. And in verse 3, gentle Holy Spirit, wind of God, come move among us, bending, breaking, filling too. And I say amen to those prayers. This morning we will be taking a look at the Beatitudes in the message here. And the title of the message is Kingdom Values and Kingdom Joys. My last sermon here, we uh, introduced a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And we'd like to proceed with that this morning here by looking at the Beatitudes. And you may recall several questions that we asked in the introduction. One of those questions was, who was the Sermon on the Mount addressed to? We looked at several possibilities, and the answer to that question is that this sermon is addressed particularly to those who would be a part of the kingdom of God. We also looked at several themes in the Sermon on the Mount, and one of those themes was the kingdom of heaven, which is referred to repeatedly throughout this sermon. So, the kingdom of heaven is a the theme. The sermon is addressed to those who are part of the kingdom of heaven. Just a few priors chapter to this, or a few chapters prior to this, John the Baptist introduced the kingdom of heaven, the first time it was mentioned, as far as I'm aware in the scriptures. And then Jesus announced that it was at hand. And now in this sermon, he is describing the kingdom of heaven. It's a new concept. What is the kingdom of heaven really like? Now, a political candidate normally has a platform, a political platform. And his platform describes his position on pertinent issues. Now, I would not want to call Jesus a politician. But in a sense, in this sermon, he was definitely presenting his values, the values of his kingdom, and his position on very pertinent issues. So as such, in a way, we could refer to this as his platform. Certain well-known leaders in the past have also had some well-known presentations of their ideals and their ideas. Some of these leaders were um, appreciated, some were less appreciated. The founding fathers of America penned what we know as the Declaration of Independence in which they portrayed values that they felt were important. Karl Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto. Adolf Hitler wrote his somewhat of an autobiography, but also a presentation of values that he thought were important, called Mein Kampf, or My Struggle. And Jesus presents the Sermon on the Mount for those in his kingdom. And the Beatitudes are an introduction to that sermon in which he presents some of the values of his kingdom, as well as some of the joys that accompany those values. So that's where the title of the sermon comes from. Kingdom values and kingdom joys. Several points we plan to look at here this morning. The Beatitudes, as I mentioned, are Jesus' introduction to his sermon. And in many ways, this is a model sermon. Speakers look at ways to be more effective in their speaking, techniques that they can use to help the audience uh, remember, to grasp and remember a point. And many of those things that are taught today, we see very obviously here in the Sermon on the Mount, very, very much a model sermon. For example, he had a very good introduction, which uh, are the Beatitudes here that we're looking at this morning. In the Beatitudes, he made some, some startling statements, some statements that were sure to get people's attention. Statements like, blessed or happy are those who mourn. Now that sounds like a paradox. That would be something that would get people's attention. Or a statement that says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That doesn't really fit in with, man's way of thinking, that the meek are the ones who are going to inherit the earth. So in his introduction, he got people's attention. Another technique he used, he very clearly stated his theme, and I think we see that in verses 17 to 20, where he emphasized the fulfillment of the law and the righteous living that he was portraying in this. Uh, His sermon, I think, follows a very clear outline. He has some very clearly stated points. And there are also parallel points, points that are similar, which is something that um, some speakers like to use. Throughout chapter 5, he says, ye have heard, but I say. He's introducing a point. A few verses later, he introduces a new point. You have heard this, but I say. And again, you have heard this, but I say. Then chapter 6, some of his points. When ye do alms, a few verses later, when ye pray. A few verses later, when ye fast, he's introducing the points of his outline. He uses illustrations. The Sermon on the Mount is filled with illustrations. Jesus refers to salt. He refers to light. He refers to birds, flowers, trees, fruit, eyesight, interpersonal relationships, gates, house construction. We already heard about that this morning and more. And he ends his sermon with a strong conclusion, with a call for action. You heard my sermon. What are you going to do about it? So we want to look here briefly at the introduction, look at the Beatitudes as an introduction to Jesus' sermon. And as I've been looking at this in recent weeks, the Sermon on the Mount as a whole and these verses in particular, I, I began to notice a few um, trains of thought that were appearing in numerous places. And it appears to me. That in the Beatitudes. Jesus was presenting thoughts. That he was going to develop. In more detail later on in the sermon. He was just kind of. Of throwing out these ideas. Presenting the ideas. Without a lot of comment. But as a way of catching attention. And whetting appetites. And giving an idea of what was to come. Later in the, the body of the message. Kind of as a preview. And I'd like to Just uh, briefly. Look over these Beatitudes and see how they are mentioned again later in the sermon. Some of them uh, more obviously, some of them maybe not quite as much so. So let's look at the first one and I might just make a comment here. How do you pronounce that first word? Our family had a little bit of discussion with that recently. Is it blessed or is it blessed? Blessed and i was kind of of the opinion well it's probably probably the correct pronunciation is blessed and saying blessed is just kind of a routine that we got into so i did a little bit of research on that and according to one source which i felt was pretty reputable probably an authority on the language they indicated that this word when it is used as a verb is pronounced blessed i was blessed Or so forth. When it is used as an adjective, the pronunciation is blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It describes them. So if you've been pronouncing this as blessed, I think you've been pronouncing it the correct way. Just for what it's worth. Now let's look at some of these as an introduction to content later in the sermon. First of all, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit spirit what he was saying is we need to recognize that we are needy people now i understand in the in the greek language there were two terms to describe poor people one term described kind of the the working poor the working class they were working they were living kind of hand to mouth they were barely making it but they were working it working and they were making it and then there was another word that described what we might say the the dirt poor, the helplessly poor. These were people that were totally at the mercy of other people. Their only way of surviving was by begging. They were helpless. They were at the mercy of others. And that is the term that Jesus used here when he used the term poor in spirit. The helplessly poor. Not the people that if they work hard enough, they can make it, but the people that are totally at the mercy of others. This was an idea that was introduced later on, or a thought that was developed later on in the message, in this uh, sermon. In chapter 7, verse 7 and 8, Jesus says, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. He was saying, you need to recognize that you cannot work your way through this on your own. You are so poor, your only hope is to live on the mercy of God And come to him, asking, seeking, and knocking. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. So we're looking at these Beatitudes as an introduction of things that are to follow later on in the sermon. The next one. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And the idea that Jesus was presenting here is that pain... Sacrifice and surrender in this life are really very small prices to pay for the rewards that are to come. And one illustration of this is in uh, later in the same chapter in verses 29 and 30 where Jesus is talking about morality, moral issues. He says, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out and cast it from thee. And that is certainly cause for mourning and weeping. It's a pain, it's a sacrifice. But then he goes on to say, For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. He's saying, Doing this sacrifice, which may bring mourning now, is certainly worth what you will receive later on. The next beatitude Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Where is that illustrated? In the passage, as you kind of look through the Sermon on the Mount in your mind, in your mind's eye, you might think of some verses that illustrate meekness. I think of verses 39 to 41 in the same chapter. Does this look like meekness? Jesus says, But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, don't stand up and defend yourself. Give to him thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. This is an illustration of the meekness that Jesus is presenting. Next beatitude. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Chapter 6, verse 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these These other things shall be added unto you, hungering after righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, in verse 7. Where is that illustrated? In verse 42, what do you do when you see someone in need? Do you have mercy on that person? Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow thee, turn not thou away. This is an illustration of having mercy on others. Blessed are the pure in heart. Sorry for the misspelling there. It must have been an uh, alter correct or something. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And again, Jesus talks about moral purity. And he indicates there are two kinds of purity. There may be the outer purity in form, but then there is the inner purity. Verses 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. That is the act. Jesus says, but I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. You see, he is referring to purity of heart, not just simply purity in form and in actions. Blessed are the peacemakers. Can you think of any verses in the Sermon on the Mount that talk about making and maintaining peace. How about verses 22, 23, 24, 25? They all talk about our relationships with our brothers. Verse 23, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come And offer thy gift. Agree with an adversary quickly. Whilst thou art in the way with him. Lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge. And the judge deliver thee to the officer. And thou be cast into prison. This is the idea of maintaining. Making and maintaining peace with others. And finally in verses 10, 11, and 12. He refers to the persecuted. Blessed are the persecuted. And... He makes reference to that again in verse 44, where persecution is seen as an opportunity. We don't think of persecution as an opportunity. Jesus presents it as an opportunity to express love, to show his love to other people. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. So as we consider the Beatitudes as an introduction, again, we just see Jesus in the Beatitudes just kind of throwing out some ideas to whet people's appetites, things that he is going to expound on later on in the message. Let's move on to the next point, the Beatitudes. Three ways that we can look at these Beatitudes three different ways we can view them. One of them is individually. And that is when you just pick out a beatitude and you take that verse alone for what it's worth. Considers each beatitude as a separate item and looks at it for its individual value. In this way, it would be similar maybe to the book of Proverbs where you have all these different quotes and all these proverbs. Each one of them is true in its own, a collection of wise and beneficial sayings or quotes. Now, some examples of looking at the Beatitudes individually. I remember when I was growing up in our home, there was a motto hanging on the wall that said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That was just simply picking out one Beatitude and focusing on that for its value. Perhaps if you're working with uh, children who are disagreeing with each other, you might present to them the verse, blessed are the peacemakers. Which one of you is going to be blessed? Which one of you are going to make peace? You're just pulling out a verse for its value. And I would like to say that everyone can benefit from the Beatitudes in this way, (coughs) even people who may not be a part of the kingdom of heaven, because there are good points there. And... This is a good way to look at the Beatitudes. It's a starting point. We need to start somewhere. And really, it's hard to assimilate the whole picture until we understand or grasp, at least in a small way, its individual parts. So individually is one way to look at the Beatitudes. Another way we can look at them is progressively. Rather than just simply picking out one and focusing on it, Looking at them progressively looks at the Beatitudes kind of as a sequence where they build on each other, where you start with kind of a step one, step two, step three, and continue through. It's not a matter of just picking and choosing what you like, but a matter of building and growing and continuing to develop. This is a concept that Peter used in his epistle when he said, add to your faith virtue and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. He was presenting these progressively. You start with faith, you add virtue, and so forth. And that is a way that we can look at these Beatitudes. And I would like to say this is a better way because it is more inclusive it recognizes that each of the beatitudes is for us rather than just the ones that we like and the beautiful thing about looking at these progressively is that we all start at the same place it's like climbing a ladder you start with the first rung and you move on to the next and the next The first rung of a ladder is intentionally placed close to the ground. If the first rung would be 10 feet high, the ladder would be useless because no one can attain that, or at least most people. And if we would need to start on a high level, these Beatitudes might be beyond our reach. But Jesus starts with a very basic point. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they who have nothing. He starts at the very ground level. That is where we need to start with God. If he would have started with the beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, we might say, well, I'm sorry, but that just seems to be pretty out of reach for me. But he starts and he continues on. You see, everyone can attain poverty of spirit. We need to recognize our poverty and then we can build on that. After we recognize it, We mourn about our condition. And then we hunger for God's righteousness. We develop purity of heart. And at that point then we're able to help others to find peace. You see how this just kind of leads us on as we grow and develop. So this is looking at them progressively. The third way of looking at them is collectively where we're not looking necessarily at individual steps, but as a unit, as a whole, as a description of a complete kingdom citizen, a description of what God is looking for as members of his kingdom. And in this way, it considers the Beatitudes as a whole, rather than just many individual parts. And it also appreciates the harmony kind of like harmonious singing where you have the different parts blending together. These different beatitudes just blend together to complete a whole. You're not just singing soprano alone, but you have all the parts blending together. It recognizes that if we fail in even one of these points, we are not all that God wants us to be. We see it as a whole. And This, I believe, is the best way to look at the Beatitudes. While each of those ways have their values, and while this may not be the starting point, we may need to start on the lower rung, but this should be our goal to gain, to get to the point where we look at this collectively and attain to have this as a description of our lives Let's move on now and looking at an overview of the Beatitudes. We're going to take each Beatitude now and just look at at it briefly. We don't have time to go into a lot of detail in each of these, but we'd like to uh, look at each one of them as we go through. And then hopefully as we do this, we can take that look at them progressively and collectively as we apply them to our lives. For my sub points for here, I just simply have the Beatitudes written. If you're taking notes, you can uh, determine what you feel is valuable to note down for for each Beatitude. The first Beatitude in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Note that this is not about what we do. It's about who we are. It describes not our action but our condition blessed are the poor in spirit who are the poor in spirit what does it mean to be poor in spirit being poor what was that i'm sorry Humble okay humility being humble poorness or or poverty is a pretty relative term If I would ask all the rich people in here to stand up, probably not too many people would stand up. Most of us don't really think of ourselves as being rich because we can always find other people to compare ourselves to that have a lot more than we do. And if we're honest, we probably wish that we would have more ourselves. So we don't go around bragging or claiming to be rich. However, If any one of you would stand next to the majority of the people in this world, you would be unquestionably and unmistakably rich. So you see, I'm saying it's it's a bit of a relative term. It depends on who you compare yourself to. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Is that a relative term? Well, my question is, who are you comparing yourself to? Who will you compare yourself to? How do we know if or not we are poor in spirit? To be poor in spirit is to hold our lives up to a divine standard, to compare our lives to God. And when we look at our lives next to God's life, next to God's character, next to God's qualities, we will see how poor we really are. And I think Isaiah is an interesting example of this. This is something that I I never really noticed before until this week. If you read chapter 5 of Isaiah, Isaiah is speaking to the people in Israel. And there's a phrase that he repeats, I think, six times in that chapter. And that phrase is, woe unto them. He's looking at the nation of Israel. Woe unto them, woe unto them, woe unto them. What happens in chapter 6? You're familiar with chapter 6. Who does Isaiah see in chapter 6? He sees himself. But before that, Isaiah was in the temple. He says, I saw God. His presence filled the temple. And when Isaiah saw God, he no longer said, Woe well unto them. What did he say in chapter 6? Woe is me. Woe is me. You see, when he looked at people, he said, Woe unto them. But when he looked at God, he saw his poorness of spirit. And he said, Woe is me. So, poorness of spirit is holding yourself up to the divine standard and seeing yourself as God sees you. I think, I may have mentioned this before, I think that's a good prayer to pray. God, Help me to see myself as you see me for who I really am. Jesus gave another example of being poor in spirit. He was teaching one day, and as he often did, he gave an illustration. He gave a story. He said two men went up to the temple to pray, and he started describing these two men. The one of them, apparently, was a pretty good man. He prayed. It's interesting. It says he prayed to himself. But he says, I thank you that I am not like this other man standing here. I pay my tithes. I'm doing a pretty good job. I'm not like this tax collector. Thank you, God, for who I am. But then there was this tax collector. Says he couldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, couldn't even lift up his face to heaven. And his only prayer was, God, God, have mercy on me. Be merciful to me the people were listening to Jesus telling this account and they were waiting because Jesus always has a point. He described these two men. Now, what's he going to say about this good man? What's he going to say about this tax collector? Can you imagine their shock when Jesus says, okay, you see the picture of these two men? I want you to know that it was the tax collector who found favor in God's eyes. Because he knew what it was to be poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is to recognize that I cannot work my way out of my situation. My only hope is to be a beggar and come to God and beg for his mercy. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those people, the poor in the spirit. Verse 4, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. The first point was about who we are. The second point is about our response when we see who we are. Mourning should be our response when we realize how spiritually poor we really are. And this was Isaiah's response. When he realized how poor he was, he cried out, woe is me. And then he confessed, I am a man of unclean lips. All those things I was saying He said, it really means nothing. My lips are unholy. He confessed who he was before God. So looking at this in a progressive way, I think when we recognize our poverty of spirit before God, then our response is to mourn before him. What about verse 5? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What is meekness. Again, our tendency is to associate meekness with weakness. To be meek is to be weak. Is that the truth? Is that the real definition of meekness? Who was known as the meekest man who ever lived? Moses. In the New Testament, who was the meekest man? Jesus, do you see these men as being weak? Was Moses a weak man? Was Jesus a weak man? Neither, neither, of them were, neither of them were weak, and yet they were meek. Meekness is a controlled strength. You see, meekness is not something that is admired by the world. We don't see the world lifting up the quality of meekness. You don't see very much meekness in the political world. You don't see very much meekness in the business world. You don't see very much meekness in the sports world. You don't see very much meekness in the fashion world. People are out there to present themselves. What does the world say? The world says, assert yourself, stand up for yourself, be yourself, be proud of yourself, avenge yourself, serve yourself, promote yourself, enjoy yourself, please yourself. Anything but being meek. Jesus was presenting the platform of his kingdom. And right from the beginning, he wanted to make it clear that this kingdom was something that was totally different than any of the kingdoms of this world, be it the political kingdom, the business kingdom, fashion kingdom, whatever it is. Jesus was declaring that his kingdom is not just simply a glossed-up makeover of these other people, but it's different from the very core, the polar opposite of what the world stands for. Move on to verse 6. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Again, people in this world hunger after many things. We hunger after many things. We hunger after fame, fortune, pleasure, excitement, adventure, success. These are things that we desire. But the interesting thing about it is that, or the problem with these things, is that if we're really honest, we need to admit that when we attain them, They do not bring fulfillment. We strive for success. What do we want? We only want more success. We strive for pleasure. It wears off. We seek more pleasure. They do not bring fulfillment. As an example, John D. Rockefeller lived some years ago, and in his lifetime, he was known as the richest man of his time. He was the first American to become a billionaire. And his wealth far exceeded that. One time he he was asked a question. Someone asked him, how much money does it take to bring happiness? He had a very interesting answer, a very perceptive answer. His answer, one more dollar. Doesn't matter how much you have. It still takes another dollar. And I think his answer was perceptive in that he recognized that no amount of money is going to bring you happiness You see, there's not fulfillment in acquiring fortune. There's not fulfillment in acquiring fame. Many of the popular people of our day know this very well. They experience fame and fortune. They have attained success in the eyes of the world. And yet, they have nothing but emptiness to show for it. I found it interesting that more, there's a, a certain day of the week on which more suicides occur than on any other day of the week. And it may not surprise you to know that that's Monday. You've heard of people who live for the weekend. The weekend comes, and it's just as empty as the rest of the week. They go through the weekend, and that emptiness is still there. But righteousness, on the other hand, brings joy and brings fulfillment. When you hunger for the things of God, you find a lasting joy and a lasting fulfillment. So I ask you the question, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? A person who is desperately hungry and desperately thirsty thinks of little else. It's just what's on his mind. He craves food. He craves something to drink. It consumes him. So what is it that consumes you? What is it that gets your attention first when you wake up in the morning? What is it that has your attention last before you retire in the evening? Your drive for success? For excitement? Popularity? Your never-ending to-do list? Or is it your thirst and your desire for God? It's really not hard to tell if you observe a person's life what it is that consumes them. Moving on to verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Someone has said that the heart and soul of the law, the Old Testament law, was justice, while the heart and soul of the gospel is mercy. And certainly, the very work of Jesus was an act of mercy. The one who has received mercy is then expected to show mercy. We're familiar with the, the, another account that Jesus gave of the man who was forgiven of this vast debt that he owed. And then he had someone who owed him a small sum. He was shown mercy. Did he in turn show mercy? No. Jesus' words for him were quite harsh. We have experienced God's mercy Are we merciful in turn? Do we extend mercy to others? John Phillips made the statement, He who shows no mercy destroys the bridge over which he himself must pass. Every one of us are in need of mercy. And when we fail to show mercy, we will fail to obtain the mercy of God. Next verse, blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. I'm wondering, as you look at this verse, what two words would stand out to you as perhaps being key words in this verse? Any suggestions? Sure. Pure? Thank you. Any other ideas? I'm looking at two words that go together. See God? See God? Anyone else? Heart. Now, if this were a Sunday school class setting, I'd ask each of you to uh, explain your reasons, and I'm sure each one of these are valid. But the two words that I was thinking of are the words in heart. Jesus didn't simply say, blessed are the pure, or blessed are those who appear pure, or blessed are those who act pure, but blessed are the pure in heart, at the very core. For they shall see God. Over the years, men have striven for purity in many ways. And centuries ago, it was a somewhat common practice for men, and even somewhat today in some areas, for men to seclude themselves away in some monastery, try to separate themselves away from the world, go to some lonely place. And their idea is that they're going to separate themselves from the temptations of the world, from the distractions of the world. But there's a problem. The problem is that when they go to these monasteries, they take themselves with them. And all of their inner nature goes with them. So even though they subject themselves to some rigid ascetic lifestyle, even though they separate themselves, they take their corruption of their own hearts along with them. Jesus said, only the pure in heart shall see God. He's asking for purity, not simply of action, but purity of heart. Someone has said that only the pure in heart can endure the burning brightness of God's holiness. And I would like to say again, if you long for an intimacy with God, he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And if you feel like there's something between you and God and that you are not able to see God's face as you wish, you are missing that intimacy with God, allow him to purify your heart. Make that your prayer. God, purify my heart. Purify me to the the core that I may experience that relationship with you. That I may see your face. Blessed are the peacemakers, verse 9, for they shall be called the children of God. Peace is elusive. Men have sought for peace for years. Men are still seeking for peace. Isaiah 57 says, The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. And I remember living in a setting in Canada by a lake shore. And uh, it so happened that our household water came out of the lake. And we we lived on the north shore of the lake. Whenever you had a south wind blowing towards the north shore, it was not a good day to collect water for your household use. We'd pump water up into a reservoir and let it flow down through to, to use in the house. But on a windy day, the lake would be stirred up. But on a calm day, that was the day you wanted to pull water. The wicked are like the troubled sea, just continually casting up that mire and dirt. Peace is elusive. The Middle East, people have been striving for peace for decades. The Korean Peninsula, you can think of other examples. How do we obtain peace? Peace between man and man can only be achieved when there is peace between man and God. And when there is peace between man and God, peace between man and man will follow. So what should be the goal of a peacemaker? The primary goal of a peacemaker is to establish that peace between man and God. And when he does so, the other peace will follow, getting right with each other. Will follow. 10, 11, and 12. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely. Jesus, in presenting the values of his kingdom, was in no way trying to give the impression that when you join his kingdom, everything is going to be peaches and cream from here on out. He was in no way giving the impression. That this is something that the world is going to embrace. The kingdom belongs to those who are willing to pay the price. Those who are willing to face resistance. Persecution can be expected. And the interesting thing about persecution, we normally think of it coming from the heathen. But that's not always the case. Many times it comes not from political leaders, but from religious leaders. In Jesus' day, it wasn't necessarily the Romans were giving him trouble, it was the Jewish leaders. And we saw that again with the apostles later on. During the time of the Reformation, it was the Catholic Church. Today, in many Muslim countries, is where you face some of the most severe persecution. You see, it's the religious people. So even for us, it may come from where we least expect it. It may come from our families, from our friends. We may even face resistance from our church members, from fellow believers. Note that Jesus was not referring here simply to any opposition, but referring to that which comes for righteousness' sake. So we looked at the Beatitudes as Jesus' introduction to the sermon. We looked at three ways to consider the Beatitudes. We took an overview of the Beatitudes. I'd like to look Briefly now, at the Beatitudes as a way of life. The question is, what will you do with the Beatitudes? Are they just simply something nice to quote? Something that sounds nice? Or are they something to live by? Jesus presented this as the basis for his kingdom. And he made no qualms about it. His kingdom... Is something that is different. His kingdom is to be different from the political world around him. But furthermore, his kingdom and the citizens of his kingdom were to be different than even nominal Christianity. The followers of his kingdom were going to stand out from the standard Jew of the day. And I believe that today the followers of Christ... The citizens of his kingdom, the people who truly follow him, are not going to fit in with what we know as nominal Christianity. You're going to stand out. You're going to be different. Too many times, even we as believers, we tend to interpret life as the world does. We value the things of the world, we value wealth and satisfaction and pleasure and approval. But when Luke gave the Beatitudes in his gospel, he went right on to address that mentality of valuing the world's values. He says, woe unto you that are rich. Blessed are the poor in spirit, but he goes right on to give the opposite side. Woe unto you that are rich. Woe unto you that are full. Woe unto you that laugh. Woe unto you when men speak well of you. You see, as kingdom followers, we are not expected to fit in with this world. We are expected to be different. We are resident aliens in this world. When I lived in another country I was a resident alien of that country. I was not a citizen of that country and I was not given all this the privileges of citizenship and I was expected to be different. I was not expected to carry the um, some the values of that country and as citizens of the heavenly kingdom we will hold a different set of values it's going to affect how we live from the world's perspective from the business perspective from the social perspective people who live by the Sermon on the Mount are flat out losers but not from God's perspective. God's perspective says, these are the people that will inherit the kingdom of heaven. These are the people that will be comforted. These are the people that shall be filled. These are the people that will obtain mercy when it really counts. These are the people that shall see God. Not only shall they see God, they shall be called the children of God. And again, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We can interpret the Sermon on the Mount. We can interpret (coughs) the Beatitudes in a variety of ways. But Jesus, I believe, presented only one way to look at them. And that is simple surrender and obedience. The only way. To receive his teachings, and I leave that with you as the challenge. Before we come to prayer, in the introductory sermon on the challenge, on the sermon on the mount, I left you with a challenge to memorize this sermon over the next number of months, and I would still encourage you to do that. I, I think I told you the last time that I'm going to be coming back to that. I presented it the last time, and I'm going to be looking for a little bit of a response this time. Now, if you feel that memorizing this entire sermon over the next number of months is more than you can handle, you can at least decide to memorize a portion of it. You probably already know portions of it. Who cannot quote the Lord's Prayer? So you already know several verses. The Beatitudes are familiar. Many of the verses are familiar. So... Basically, if the entire sermon is too much, you set the amount. You have the liberty to do that. So here's my question for you. Are you willing to commit to try to memorize at least a portion of the Sermon on the Mount? Now, I'm trying to make this easy, okay? I didn't say you're committing to memorizing it. I'm saying you're committing to try to memorize it. Okay? I just want to clarify that you're going to try to do what you can. If you are willing to do that, I'd like you to stand up. Anyone who is willing to, to do that. Now, I want you to look around a little bit and pick out somebody And then go to that person after church and tell that person your goal. Tell them how much you want to memorize and then make yourself accountable to that person. Because I don't plan to ask you each Sunday if you're up to date. That's between you and whoever you choose to make yourself accountable to. Thank you. You may sit down. And God bless you as you do that. I think it will be time well spent. I think you will be very rewarded in doing that. Uh, One other thing I will just briefly mention here, someone came to me after the first sermon and suggested that those who memorize this passage, that we could meet together sometime and actually uh, do some quizzing on the passage. I thought that was an interesting idea, and I'm just going to throw it out to you. Uh, If that's something you're interested in, uh, let me know. Now, I will clarify, this will not include school students. This will not include the, the professional quizzers, okay? So you will have a chance. So if you're interested in getting a team together, you talk to me about it. And if there's enough interest, then I'll get back to you about that. And if you're never quizzed before, don't be intimidated. It's just something that we do uh, on, a, on a very simple level. And if you're interested in doing that... Um, We'd probably aim to do it sometime in February so you can aim to have the passage memorized by the end of uh, January and you should be in in shape to go. Thank you for that. I invite you, if you're able to, to kneel with us in prayer.